Okay, so today we're going to be kind of stepping back into another one of those history lessons. This one's a particularly interesting one. So um, last time we kind of looked at election. Today we're going to be looking at the gospel call. Um, I do apologize if this feels kind of reedy today. It's very much, um, I'm pulling from the historical theology book. Uh, that accompanies the systematic theology book here, and I've tried to condense down as much of this uh, as possible, but there's so much good goodness that, that comes out of this chapter particularly um, that it's just been very difficult. Uh, this is actually the chapter, as I was thinking about compressing all of these kind of... Uh, uh, lessons that would essentially like have these inflection points at the uh, Reformation. This is the chapter in particular that I thought, you know what, there's so much in this that uh, I'm just going to do some standalones, a couple standalones, and then we'll get back into the systematic theology stuff. Um, so today, uh, there's a couple of things that I want us to point out here, and this, this is probably a good start as well because there's going to be some places in future studies where I want us to reflect on the same thought. Um, so so this, being, this being one where we're going to hit today where we differ in, in some significant ways from a large majority of church history in some significant places. Um, one we're going to look at is the connection between regeneration or new birth and baptism in general, right? Um, and another is infant baptism, okay? Um, so there are going to be these are going to be two two areas in which we in the Baptist denomination differ in some pretty significant ways from a lot of what was going on throughout the history of the church. And when we find ourselves holding to doctrines that perhaps are new, uh, we should ask ourselves why. Okay? Um, or if we find ourselves holding to doctrines that significant portions of the church throughout the history of the church have differed in their opinion at large with us, then we should consider why that is, right? So this is going to be one of those. This is going to be one of those areas where we're going to see uh, regeneration or new birth connected with baptism for the large majority of church history, and then we're going to see like during the Reformation um, these. Uh, the, the, the separation of regeneration from baptism kind of making itself uh, more dominant within, uh, within a, a number of streams of, of the Protestant church. So that's something that I do want us to pay attention to here, though that's not the primary focus of this lesson in, his, in the historical theology book. It is something that I think that we should take note of. Um, and just kind of spoiler alert, um, the future lesson that I want us to kind of, that, that I want this to kind of prepare our thoughts and minds towards um, is when we get to eschatology in general and what the way that we view the end times. Because when we get there, also what we're going to find is that there's a particular view of the end that seems to have come out very late in the history of the church. Essentially, like 
200 some odd years ago and yet we find it especially in our area extremely prevalent so when we get to these areas i want us to uh, be open enough to think why is it that we believe something that a large majority of the church is not believed where do we find those foundations um, and for us as baptists um, baptism being a primary thing in this in this particular chapter i think it's a good uh, a good thing. I'm not trying to convert you away from <laughs> being a Baptist to being something else, right? Um, so, uh, so we can be safe in, in asking this question as a group because when we get to the eschatology stuff, I may actually be trying to convince you away from a particular worldview that you hold uh, that I don't necessarily think is, is grounded in Scripture. So here, we're probably all on the same page. We do not connect um, the new birth with baptism, but what we're going to find is that the church historically has. And a lot of like titans of the faith have made that connection. Um, so we should be considering... Uh, as we see this reality, uh, why it is that we differ here. So we're going to start kind of just with a statement of belief here. And if you were following along in the historical theology book, I'm just kind of reading the, the first little uh, piece of that uh, verbatim. So the church historically has, has acknowledged the proclamation of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is the gospel, is, one, is the one and only message by which sinful human beings may experience salvation so kind of first and foremost here we should understand that the word has always been central in this uh, talk of new birth so uh, it is the gospel call or it is this gospel call that is the first step in foundational reality for the application of salvation in the lives of those who become Christians. So this is this is universally held here. So uh, from the outset, the church has associated regeneration and conversion with the preaching of the gospel. So the gospel proclamation has always been first and foremost there. The mysterious work of the Holy Spirit, that is, we all understand that the Holy Spirit must call us. This has come to be known the effect as the effective call. Uh, repentance, faith, and baptism. Okay? But how these activities are related to one another in the process of salvation has become and continues to be uh, a contested issue. Uh, so the Roman Catholic Church being one of the kind of the, the big uh, sections here, uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church insists on baptismal regeneration. Uh, that is, water baptism is the means of grace by which the new birth is effectively accomplished for those who are being baptized. Thus, the gospel regeneration and faith are necessarily tied in with this sacrament. Protestant churches deny baptismal regeneration, but nonetheless insist on the necessity of both regeneration and conversion involving repentance and faith. All right, so um, those are some of the kind of big things to point out kind of in the statement of faith. Another kind of thing just additionally is that many Protestants acknowledge not only a call to salvation that is extended to everyone, this, they would call this just the general call. Um, so this is if a preacher stands up and preaches, that's a call being made to those who are hearing. But also um, they would point out uh, what is known as the effective call that summons those who become Christians to salvation. So a distinction there uh, is often made between the general proclamation of the gospel and what would tend to be called, referred to as like an inward 
calling of you by the Holy Spirit. So we're going to start out uh, like we did last time, looking at the early church. We're going to move from the early church to the medieval church, from the medieval church to the Reformation. Um, and in this particular one, we'll probably kind of just stop at the Reformation. Um, that's where the, the big ideas kind of point out here. But if necessary, um, when we're doing this historical stuff, we will uh, step into kind of modern age if there's been any advancements on these ideas in the modern age. So uh, if we look at Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, he pre- presents the necessity of regeneration uh, for salvation. Specifically there, he's calling it, you need to be born again, right? So uh, you can see this in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. This new birth comes about through the Holy Spirit's personal agency and the instrumentality of the Word of God. Uh, you can see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, or excuse me, First Peter chapter one verses twenty three through twenty five, or James chapter one verse eighteen. As the disciples proclaimed this word, they called people to convert, which entailed both repentance and faith in Christ. The powerful work of God in calling people to salvation is an essential aspect of this, and comes through the gospel. Um, so. Um, We're going to look at a couple of ideas now that have come from various um, uh, writers that we can kind of glean from the text that were from the the, kind of the time of the early church. One known as Cyprian emphasized that regeneration was completely a work of God saying the new man is born again and restored in restored to his God by his grace. Another another man named Barnabas associated this regeneration with faith, divine revelation, and repentance. Uh, Barnabas saying, by receiving the forgiveness of sins and setting our hope on the name, we became new, created again from the beginning. As for the role of repentance, Tertullian explained the meaning of the word itself. So this is how Tertullian would have defined repentance itself. He would say, in Greek, the word repentance is formed not from the confession of sin, but from a change of mind, right? Uh, For Clement of Alexandria, this meant repentance is an effect of faith, For unless a man believes that to which he was addicted is sin, he will not abandon it. And if he does not believe that punishment looms over the transgressor and that salvation belongs to the one who lives according uh, according to the commandments, he will not reform. Uh, Kind of uh, looking back at Cyprian, um, we're going to focus kind of quite a bit on some things that he said um, because uh, he really did a, did a bit to, uh, to kind of um, push along this, uh, this idea of baptism being uh, linked with regeneration as well as um, the infant baptism thing as well. So Cyprian uh, associated this change uh, with the Holy Spirit, by the eight in saying this, by the agency of the Spirit breathed from heaven, a second birth had restored me to a new man. Um, uh, and then continuing on, of course, this radical transformation of life provoked amazement among those both outside and inside the church. Tertullian noted some persons under 
under that those whom they had known to be unsteady, worthless, or wicked before they bore the name of Christian have been suddenly converted to virtuous courses. Um, and Origen kind of following the same, the same theme of like being able to see the work of God in people, said this, The multitude of the church is astonished at beholding transformations which have taken place from so great evils to that which is better. So one thing uh, uh, along with this uh, new birth, this new life, is that that was clear evidence within the church and without that the people who were making claims to be followers of Christ, there was there was tangible differences seen in their life, right? So along with this new birth came new ways of living, right? Which is what we should expect from ourselves, and this is not this is not uncommon to the teaching that you would hear at Mount Carmel, right? We don't say that you work so that you can be saved, but we would very much say that from your salvation, from true faith, comes the fruit of the Spirit, comes work for the glory of God, right? Um, so people ought to see the change that you proclaim. That's the idea there. Um, so Tatian's conversion, this is, a, this is what I'm going to read, uh, kind of a quote from him at length, because I think this is really essential. I think sometimes when we look back on people who, were, who preceded us by many years, we consider ourselves to be in a place where like, we have access to any amount of knowledge that you might need. I mean, half the things you could just literally lift your phone up and speak into it and get some amount of information back regarding any question that you might have. So we consider ourselves in many ways to be more educated or, or more intelligent than people who came before us. Um, and sometimes whenever I read, especially I read some of the quotes of people who did come before us, whether it be like um, like men like Tatian here and what we're going to hear in his conversion, or um, even like I was reading, what was it that I was reading, Adrian, the other day? It was, it was out of one of those books. It was like something to do with like the Constitution, or no, it was pre, it was pre that. It was like... Uh, I wish I could think of what it was, but there was just a one of the founding fathers, essentially one of his writings, and I was just amazed at like how educated he sounded compared to um, the way that we tend to speak today. Like I feel like like we're moving more towards like this like archaic way of speaking where we speak again in symbols versus like speak educated in, in words so um, as we read this I, I just want I just want us to kind of just pay attention to uh, to the way that he the way that he speaks about this I think it's 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 very insightful so Tatian's conversion was prompted by a study in which he contrasted the contradictory and unethical writings of the ancient Greeks and Romans with certain barbaric I'm air quoting here barbaric writings that is scripture so he was he was like studying and examining the writings of his time the contemporary writings here with these barbaric writings um, and this is what he said too old to be compared with the opinions of the Greeks and too divine to be compared with their errors I was led to put faith in these by the unpretentious nature of the language 
the authentic character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed of future events, the excellent quality of the precepts, and the declaration of the government of the universe as centered on one being. As my soul was being taught by God, I discerned that the former class of writings leads to condemnation, but that these put an end to the slavery that is in the world and rescue us from a multiplicity of rulers and 10,000 tyrants. So what is central? What, what was central in the conversion of this individual here? Clearly, the Word of God and exploring the Word of God. So central to new birth is examining the Scriptures, right? So, um, as I mentioned kind of earlier, uh, a very important development in the early church, which was strengthened by Cyprian, was the belief that baptism regenerates or brings the new birth, right? So, from the beginning of the church, baptism was connected with new birth, all right? I want us to get that. Um, so if we kind of continue on, we're still kind of in this section of the, uh, the early church. And here we're going to find again, as we did in the last, in the last study, um, we're going to find Augustine and we're going to find Pelagius. And we're going to find these two ideas and these two worldviews kind of um, being at odds, but existing up in, in the very early church. So Augustine posited two calls, uh, one that goes out to all people indiscriminately and does not result in salvation. So this would be that general call, like a preacher stands up and proclaims the gospel. And a second call that goes out only to the elect and that does, and that does result in their salvation with guarantee. So he would say, God calls many predestined children of his to make them members of his only predestined son not with the calling which which others were called who would not come we know that there is a certain sure calling of those who were called according to God's purpose whom he is foreknown and predestined before to be conformed to the image of his son Continuing, Augustine said, This is not any sort of calling whatever, but that calling with which a man is made a believer. All right, so um, this is a pretty significant, a pretty significant um, development here. This would um, later be picked up by the reformers, specifically by Calvin, and kind of reignite, in reigniting this, uh, this um, idea of kind of these, these two calls. So um, uh, he would go on to say, so Augustine would go on to say, uh, everyone who has learned of the Father not only has the possibility of coming, but comes. And in this result, are already included the motion of the capacity, the affection of the will, and the effect of the action. So that's from Augustine there. So uh, Augustine stood opposed to the view of human free will and divine grace as put forward by Pelagius. We talked about that last time. I want to go a little bit further into some of the things that Pelagius says here. 
Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read kind of a, a, an excerpt of one of the quotes that they have in here for Pelagius, uh, which he said, uh, God wished to present to the rational creature the gift of voluntary goodness and the power of free will. So he planted in human beings the possibility of turning itself towards either side. All right. Now, uh, if I stop and I just say that, I feel like a lot of us would jive with that. We'd be like, that kind of sounds reasonable. Uh, Pelagius did not stop there, though. He went way farther in this. So uh, this is, again, quoting from him here. Furthermore, people do not have an internal tendency to sin. So uh, original sin there, denying. Uh, People are not inclined in any way towards doing evil. Pelagius held that God creates every human soul, meaning that no one is born with corrupt nature inherited from Adam. Also, humanity certainly does not bear any guilt for Adam's sin. Again, a denial of Adam's sin there, uh, or original sin, because no one can be held morally accountable for what, another person does for Pelagius the conclusion of this was that believers helped by God God's grace could live without sin um, of course this position was far removed from the church's traditional understanding of original sin the need for regeneration faith repentance and baptism and Augustine's insistence on divine election and the necessity of grace the church through Augustine's influence condemned Pelagius and his views okay um so uh, kind of as we spoke about already augustine made a distinction between a general call which is extended to all people through the message of the gospel and a particular call which is extended only to the elect and ensures their response to salvation Uh, in doing so augustine anticipated and provided the foundations for a very important development the fruit of which would not be seen until the Reformation. So many, many, many years later would this idea kind of be brought back up again and explored fully. So uh, we're stepping now over into kind of the Church of the Middle Ages here. This is kind of the the, the established church here. Um, still during this time, the theology and practice of the church identified baptism with regeneration. So through the Middle Ages, baptism and, gener- and regeneration were linked. Baptism and new birth were linked. It wasn't. It was not in any way what you would hear proclaimed within a like a Baptist denomination, right? Um, it would sound more akin to what you would hear in like the Catholic worldview or what you would hear in like a Church of, a Church of Christ worldview today. So uh, we do differ here, and I want us to, to, to be aware of that. So um, although this baptismal regeneration was for adults in areas previously untouched by the message of Christ, wherever the church became established, the baptism of infants became the norm. So this was like infant baptism was was the norm here. Um, the medieval church debated the merits of Augustine's doctrine of salvation, particularly as it addressed the issue of how human will is related to the grace of God. So we spoke about that last time, right? How like Augustine had these ideas, but the majority of the church at the time um, they had they had a, a a strong leaning towards the freedom of the will. 
um, and that led them in conflict in some areas with with what Augustine was putting forward. So the Church of the Middle Ages, <coughs> excuse me, kind of wrestled with this. Um, a, p- a particular individual, uh, John Cassian, expressed the central issue in the following set of questions. So I'm going to quote a couple of excerpts from uh, John Cassian uh, here. Uh, he says. Does God have compassion on us because we have shown the beginning of a good will? Or does the beginning of a good will follow because God has had compassion on us? So who is the first mover here is kind of the the idea that's coming forward. Are you good because something from you initiates it and then God comes alongside you? Or um, is this good will followed uh, does it follow from the compassion that God has on us? Uh, many people believing each of these and asserting them more strongly than right become entangled in all kind of contradictions. So even for Casey, and he was seeing this debate and the extremes of this debate leading to um, a number of, of contradictions along the way. So another quote out of this excerpt from him, for if we say that the beginning of Free, if, that the beginning of free will is in our own power. What about Paul the persecutor and Matthew the tax collector? Um, and then he says, but if we say that the beginning of our free will is always due to the inspiration of the grace of God, what about the, va- the faith of Zacchaeus or the goodness of the thief on the cross? So here in this, he's kind of pointing out what would appear to be two sides of, of this um, kind of sourcing of 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 freedom or, or of doing good here. Uh, accordingly, Cassian insisted on both human free will and the necessity of divine grace against Augustine. He denied that human will beset by sin is only capable of doing evil. Um, Cassian, uh, this is another quote from him, it cannot be doubted that there are by nature some seeds of goodness in every soul implanted by the kindness of the Creator, but unless these are quickened by the assistance of God, they will not be able to attain to an increase of perfection. Um, his view, that sal- he, he viewed salvation as a synergistic work here, so like a, a, a collaboration or cooperation between uh, the will of man and uh, God. Okay, um, this would influence both the Roman Catholic Church and some expressions of Protestantism into the centuries that followed. So now, and we're actually making really good time, I think. Um, now we're stepping over into the time of the Reformation. Um, we're going to look here first at Luther, uh, Martin Luther. Uh, he continued to link regeneration with baptism. So from the early church down through the Middle Ages, down to uh, the early reformers, uh, baptism was linked with regeneration. There is less there is less time between the reformers and us than the reformers in the early church. That's something that we should kind of just in general. There's less time between Calvin, Martin Luther, and those guys than there is the modern church than if you started with them and worked your way all the way back to the early church, right? Uh, so, hmm? Yes, yes. It's no small, it's no small difference here. Like it's a significant amount of time. Like the Middle Ages ate up a lot of church history, right? And then Reformation and then us, right? It's like there's a lot. So during that entire span of time, 
the general understanding when it comes to regeneration or new birth is it's directly tied to baptism, right? Um, like you, like without baptism, there would be no salvation in that regard. Um, so he still practiced infant baptism and still viewed it as regenerating infants. All right, so that's Martin Luther. Um, so s- some developments clearly came, came out of the Reformation. At the same time, um, Martin Luther linked regeneration with saving faith. Indeed, he emphasized that apart from faith in Christ, through his word, regeneration does not take place. And that's where like the Baptists would be like, well, don't you see that you're at odds then? If, if faith must you know, be kind of accompanying that regeneration, then how could a child that you baptize when they don't have knowledge of what that's about, um, you know, how could how could that happen? Well, luckily enough, Calvin actually comes up with a, a, an attempted solution at that, um, and we'll see that here in a little bit. Um, it's actually not a bad one. Um, he kind of looks back towards, um, we're not going to jump into it now, but he looks back towards circumcision and how children were circumcised before they understood what that circumcision was about and he uses kind of that as the stepping point for how he kind of interweaves in um, baptizing baptizing infants so Calvin Calvin held to baptizing them as well so uh, back to Martin Luther so uh, faith he, he would say that faith the work of the Holy Spirit fashions a different mind and different attitudes and makes an altogether new human being. Therefore, faith is an active, difficult, and powerful thing. If we want truly to consider what it really is, it is something done to us rather than something that we do. Now, I, I want us to kind of—I I love the wording that he says there because I think that he, he brings out a particular um, a particular understanding of, of faith here that is a bit a bit nuanced. So he's pointing out that faith is a thing that happens to you that it doesn't start with you is uh, I think something that he would agree with Um, it is something done to us rather than something that we do for it changes the heart and the mind Uh, more specifically he would point towards a text like Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and say uh, it is a faith is a work of God not of man as Paul teaches uh, the other works, he works through us. That is, the other works God works through us and with our help. But this one alone, he works in us and without our help. So that's from Luther there. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, quote at length Luther in this in this next little run here. Um, the real faith of which we are speaking cannot be brought into being by our own thoughts. On the contrary, it is entirely God's work in us without any cooperation on our part. Therefore, it is a very mighty, active, relentless, busy thing, which at once renews a man, gives him second birth, introduces him to a new manner and way of life, so that it is impossible for him not to do good without ceasing. For as naturally as a tree bears fruit, good works follow upon 
faith. So again, kind of echoing these realities that the early church was testifying to seeing that when people uh, received this regeneration, received this new birth, there was evidence within their lives. Um, now if we fast forward a little bit over to Calvin, um, Calvin, having set forward his doctrine of faith, insisted that the view that repentance not only constantly follows faith, but is born of faith, ought to be a fact beyond controversy. He defined repentance as the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of Him, and it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and in the vivification of the Spirit." He also underscored that repentance, and this is a quote from him directly, that repentance is a special gift of God. All right? So repentance is a gift of God in Calvin's view here. Um, And that the effectiveness of the gospel call to repentance, and again a quote from him, depends on the spirit of regeneration. It was at this point uh, that Calvin resurrected Augustine's notion of the general call and the effective call to salvation. Um, and so there's both a general call, in Calvin's view, there's both a general call extended to everyone through the gospel and a particular call extended only to the elect at the same time. Specifically, as he would say, this is a quote from him, all are called to repentance and faith by outward preaching. Yet the spirit of repentance and faith is not given to all. Only the elect receive this call, which consists not only in the preaching of the word of God, but also in the illumination of the spirit. Um, So continuing on with kind of some of the... um, things that Calvin added to this conversation um, intermixed into this discussion was the doctrine of baptism because he continued the tradition of infant baptism. Calvin had to address how that practice relates to regeneration and conversion. Calvin appealed to the circumcision in the Jewish infants um, and then Working from this, this is his conclusion here. Um, This is a quote from him. Infants are baptized into future repentance and faith, and even even though these have not been yet formed in them, the seed of both lies hidden within them by the secret working of the Spirit. So clearly the Roman Catholic Church uh, denounced everything that was coming out of the Protestant Reformation. right? Um, at the Council of Trent, uh, they came to this conclusion, relying upon the concept of prevenient grace, that's grace that precedes. Um, the Council insisted that this salvation is the result of a cooperative effort between God, between God who supplies grace and human beings who takes advantage and human beings who take advantage of this grace. So um, at the point of the Reformation, um, you can kind of see this like this shift, this underlying shift where um, the work of salvation in new birth, in regeneration from the reformers tended to come from this, like you brought nothing to the table type of equation, um, and and the work starts with God, and, and God ultimately performs this work, and then on the other side, um, of this debate at the time was the Roman Catholic Church, and they had um, this view of kind of this uh, cooperation 
um, that, that was worked between God who supplied the grace and human beings who uh, took advantage of that grace. Um, they, were not the, they were not the last to take that view either. As we get in kind of closer to the modern age, um, we will see that Arminius kind of, um, kind of takes a similar stance as to what uh, the Catholic view on that, uh, that would be. Not exactly, but, but uh, close enough for now um, for us to kind of make that, that analogy. Um, during this time, um, the Anabaptists, and I'm going to read, the, this is kind of where that distinction between us and um, those who would hold to like infant baptism or baptism being so closely tied to regeneration. This is where that, dif- that differentiation uh, starts making itself known. So it, the, kind of the beginning of these ideas began with the Anabaptists. Um, the Anabaptists repudiated infant baptism, demanding that only those who could repent of their sins and make credible profession of faith in Christ could be baptized. In the Waterland Confession, a clear distinction and separation between regeneration and baptism was drawn. It declared the origin, instrumentality, and necessity of regeneration, saying this regeneration has its rise from God through Christ. The medium or instrument through which it is generated in us is the Holy Spirit with all his fiery virtues apart from any cooperation of any creature. See, so they're also like the Anabaptists are kind of separating themselves from, from that view of co- like that cooperative view here um, that, that you would see in like the Roman Catholic Church. Um, oh, now I, missed, I dropped my spot in here. We affirm that they are born not of anything whatsoever that the creature does, but from God, and by it we become children of God. We believe and teach that this regeneration is necessary to salvation. As for the rite of baptism, the confession confirmed, and this is a quote from it, uh, holy baptism is an external, visible, and evangelical action in which according to Christ's precepts and the practice of the apostles for a holy end are baptized with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Those who hear, believe, and freely receive in a penitent heart the doctrine of the Holy Gospel, Christ commands such people to be baptized, but by no means infants. This theology unlinking regeneration from baptism and denouncing infant baptism was continued by the Baptists. So later on, the Baptists uh, kind of took this same this same idea. Um, just Anabaptists and Baptists sound really closely alike. It's not as though one evolved from the other, though. I don't want you to to get that impression. But uh, later on down the line, the, as the Baptists um, formed, this was kind of something that they picked up on as well. So um, they believe that those who actually, or we believe, those who actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So for Baptists, baptism does not cause regeneration, nor can it be viewed as a sign of some future repentance and faith. It is reserved for those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Christ Jesus. So then we get to... 
I said we were good on time. We've got five minutes, so we, we'll, we'll finish this and, and be done with it. Um, so following the, vel- the developments of Martin Luther, the Reformed and Baptist churches, the theology of Jacob Arminius came along. Um, for him, it was important that theological theological addition that kind of happened in the, this closer to the modern era. It posited a kind of grace and this word provenient, which we also see uh, kind of associated with the Roman Catholic view, uh, this provenient grace, um, that it is active in the salvation of sinful people, The great that this grace overcomes the dreadful effects of original sin and enables all people everywhere to respond posi- positively to God's work of salvation. Um, John Wesley continued saying, uh, The condition of man after the fall of Adam is such that he cannot turn and prepare himself by his own natural strength and works to faith and calling upon God. Therefore, we have no power to do good works, pleasant and acceptable to God, without the prevenient grace of God by Christ going before us that we may have a good will and working within us when we have that good will. Um, Wesley also challenged those who had been baptized as infants not to rely on their experience for their present salvation. Um, so as we kind of in closing here, as we see like a lot of the same um, continual disagreements that we saw when we were talking about election predestination previously, a lot of those can be seen kind of threaded through this discussion as well. A couple of the things that I want us to kind of consider that are unique to us particularly is um, the the decoupling of regeneration and baptism is something that is relatively recent in the history of the church. How many of you knew that? I'm curious. How many of you knew that, like, the way that we disconnect regeneration and baptism? Like, and so when I say this to say, I say this to say, um, know why it is that you believe in that decoupling, right? Know why it is that you believe in that decoupling, but also... As we, as we come to realize that our opinion, our view on this is a relatively new view in the history of the church, we ought to be generous in the way that we approach those who do not agree with us on this matter, right? Because the reality is, is the history of the church may actually be in their favor, not ours. Which means you, as Baptists, those who are following this particular doctrine, you wouldn't be baptizing infants. Um, you you believe that you that baptism is not necessarily the essential element of being born again. Um, these are things that I hold to myself. Right? Uh, we we all to know why it is that we hold to that. And it not just be because we were born, you know, in the last 50 some odd years and and because of that we've just taken up the the, the cultural flow of the church that we find ourselves in, right? Um, understand the doctrines that you uh, hold to, dig into them, 
Um, and through that, you'll follow Christ more closely. Um, this is like uh, one of the reasons that we that I decided as we started the systematic theology kind of walk through that I decided to kind of link it with um, historical theology is I think that it's critically important for us when we find ourselves holding to views that are relatively new. If you're going to continue holding to it, you had better be rock solid in your theology in those areas, right? Um, we're going to get to a couple of places where that's going to tie in a bit more later, um, but this is one of those for us specifically uh, here at Mount Carmel.